The Lord be with you. This is uh, Epiphany, the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, actually. And um, we're reading this text. The people that Jesus was speaking to in texts like the one we just heard, um, they were a simple people, an illiterate people, really, um, who simply took Jesus at his word. So many of the stories of the saints throughout history are of how they heard a bit of one of the Gospels, and they just acted on it, right, uh, seemingly rashly. One of the stories I showed you last week was about St. Anthony, who uh, really had never attended a Christian service, and one day in his village, he's walking by some people that had gathered, and they were reading the Gospel. And the part of the Gospel that he heard was when Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And uh, Anthony's response, he was a wealthy young man. He, he had, his parents had died and he had inherited all their wealth and they were merchants. And he basically, when he heard that, was sort of stunned and went directly, sold everything that he had and gave it all to the poor. And so then he goes out into the desert and lives as a hermit. He ends up living for over 100 years. And uh, that whole time that he's living, even though he... He ran with the gospel text that was uncontextualized, really not explained. There was, there was something really beautiful about his simple obedience. Yet, what happens is that he begins to become full of wisdom as he embraces text. He was literate. And people and rulers from all over the known world began to send delegations to him into the desert to ask him questions. So his simplicity had grown to be able to handle enormous, nuanced complexities. So when we're talking about being a follower of Jesus, not only do we want to simply respond to him, we have to recognize that there are times that there are nuances and complexities that we should grow into. And I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about really two things in relation to making God known to those who are around us. That's what Epiphany is about. It's, it's our call to make God known in the world. It's that celebration of when God peeks out from hiding and our invitation, he does that through creation. He does that through the prophets. He does that through miracles. He does it in a number of ways, but he also wants to do it through his people, through the church. And I've been begging us not to just think about aggressive evangelism when we think about making God known. In fact, I'm convinced that most of us are to reach others by simply living well and loving well and creating a question in the minds of those that are within proximity of us versus uh, being kind of preaching directly at folks, even though there are some people that are uniquely gifted to that end. I had one friend, his name was Joseph Jennings. He's gone on to be with Jesus. But he, he was a great guy and um, an evangelist at the heart. But you would be, I mean, I would be with him anywhere like in a, in a restaurant or something. And we'd be sitting there and talking and laughing. He was kind of a big, big, uh, real muscly uh, African-American guy and just so, so gregarious and so engaged. So we're sitting there, we'd laugh. I, I was his pastor for years. And just somewhere in the middle of the thing as we're talking to, uh, to the, like the uh, waitress or waiter or something, he would make a statement. He said, hey, he said, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior? And they go, no, should I? You should, you know, honey, they just, and I, and I think to myself, how do you get away with that? I mean, when I do this, well, you know, it's like never worked for me to be that kind of aggressive, but there are some people that have something on them that when they do it, nobody's threatened. They just are open to them. So if, if you have that kind of gift, 
Just don't universalize it. Because all you do if we try to copy you is create creeps. I think the text for most of us is 1 Peter chapter 3, where, but, where Peter writes, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord in your own interiority. Make sure that you let Jesus establish the values that you hold and the way you think about life, about money, about forgiveness, about your sexuality, about anything that your life touches. Make sure you set apart Christ as Lord uh, in your heart. And then be ready because... Somebody's going to ask you. Be ready to answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. But even when you do that, make sure you do it with a kind of gentleness, not absolute certitude and demand, but gentleness and respect. So what I want to talk about this morning is I, I think a big part of setting apart Christ as Lord in your heart and my heart has to do with how we handle truth. Um. I think the way we handle truth will either make Christ known to those around us or it will obscure him. Just how we handle it, how we talk about it. There are two things I want to express to you. One is that truth is a many-faceted thing and even contradictory if you keep listening. That there's a point at which truth seems to get into tension with itself. That's number one. Number two is dare to keep listening until a kind of song emerges, you find a third way of approaching things when you talk about truth. Okay, so that's what I want to deal with. So first, truth is this many-faceted thing, even contradictory if you keep listening. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. Jesus in our text makes the claim that blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed is the person who keeps moving towards the other, right? If there's some some friction there. Uh, the other is a person who's in conflict with us. Certainly, our immediate family and those we know and care for should be people we should pursue and try to make sure things are right and that peace is dominating. And yet, in another place, Jesus said, this is in Matthew 10, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. <laughs> for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So in one sense, in one place, Jesus said, the peacemakers are the sons and the daughters of God. And then another place, Jesus said, but don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He said at various, what, what's going on here? I mean, I, I, what is true? The answer is both right? This, we're to be peacemakers, but we can't compromise what we feel God is saying to us. The word for that is called syncretism. It's this notion that we try to put things together that don't fit together. And sometimes when you're like oil and water, it's not possible. So sometimes when you're when people that we're around make it impossible for us to be peace with them and be at peace with God. And so what ends up happening is we must obey God, right? So the truth is, he's, he calls us to be peacemakers, but sometimes he carries, he asks us to carry a sword. Hmm. Another example is Jesus' mantra, to feed and care and to give to the poor. And yet the New Testament tells us in 2 Thessalonians, not only to do that, but watch this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, we command you brothers to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. 
For you yourselves know that you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked at night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you. Watch, to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a person will not work, that person should not eat. Okay, so... In one sense, we've got Jesus who constantly and persistently, and it carries on through the church, feed the poor, care for the poor, watch out for them, hear their cry, and participate in helping them. And in another sense, we have a statement that's saying, okay, if they're not willing to work, they're not going to eat. So which one's right? Both are, right? <laughs> We're to care for, give to, feed the poor, but as we bring them in into our lives we're to be call them to begin to pick up their own weight. And if they won't, they can't be cared for without accountability because they're not supposed to abuse the care that we bring. Right? Uh, here's another example. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You're not saved by works. Yeah. Right? They're good reformers, right? And then here comes James. What good is it, my brothers, in James 3, if a man claims to have faith but has no works? Can such faith save him? But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. All right, so who's right here, James or Paul? Both. See, they're only right when we consider them in tension. This is how truth works. That's why you can't be an absolutist on one side or the other. You can't be a fundamentalist on one side or the other. You've got to be willing to be a little more open to growth and challenge and messiness. Truth, it turns out, isn't just black or white. It's 18% neutral gray. <laughs> one last one back to Jesus. Jesus says to this woman who's been caught in the act of sin, go and sin no more, right? But in that same story, Jesus says to this very woman, neither do I condemn you. Okay, so which is it, right? <laughs> Going easy on the sinner, right? Neither do I condemn you, or telling people to stop. It's both. See, we must nudge people to turn from destructive things like sin. But we must always make sure they know we are never judgmental of them. That we're never condemning them. And that we understand people's sin because they don't know what else to do. And there's a kind of graciousness about us and a kindness about us. This is the, 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 the gnarliness of sin. See, the point is truth is nuanced. It's not simplistic. And it is, it is only understood in tension. Truth is kind of like a mountain, you know, that has many faces, right? On one part of it, it looks maybe like a gentle sloping, you know, that kind of goes up. And another part, it looks like there's these stark cliffs, right? Same mountain. Truth is like that. Truth, th th this same kind of openness has to be embraced in the context of theology. When we talk about various aspects of theology, Scripture says, for instance, God is one and yet describes him as three. 
Okay, all right. Some texts say you were saved. Other texts say you're being saved. Other texts say you're going to be saved. So which one is it? It's all of them. See, what we have to understand is that it's only when we keep these kinds of ideas in tension and realize that we only have bits of clarity. And even the clarity we enjoy, there's a darkness. Paul says we see through a glass darkly. This is not easy for us. <laughs> we usually try to speak about God to each other and our neighbors and our coworkers and our children like we talk about gravity or the nature of matter, just with absolute certitude. Well, this is what the Word of God says, right? Not realizing that a lot of times we're proof lining up a bunch of texts to prove a point, not realizing there's a bunch of other texts that prove the counterpoint. And, and most of us want to believe totally convinced and, and we, we want to be totally exacting about what we believe. We, and, and we get to the point where we believe we're totally right and all others are wrong. And that's when we get to that point, we think, now we're speaking with authority. Now we're standing up for the truth. Right? But we have to admit that, that making God known is a sketchy enterprise. Because technically, and you're going to love this, Technically, God does not even exist. Now, that's tweetable right there. <laughs> See, what do you mean God doesn't? God doesn't even, he is the reason for existence. He, but he doesn't exist like things exist. He's beyond existence. All existence is guaranteed by him. But he does not exist in the sense that we understand existence, right? Um, all things that are, are grounded in him. Existence is grounded in him. Edith Stein, the philosopher and Carmelite nun, basically lays down this critical rule for all of our God talk. And here's what she wrote, quote, God is always ever greater, greater than our affirmations, greater than what we can say or think, greater than what we can understand or even desire to understand, end quote. This is God. So what do we even mean when we say, I believe in God? What does that even mean? It, it, we're saying that we believe in this transcendent being who's actually beyond being and who's transcendent beyond description. This is Christianity 101, that we kind of come to this place where we're going... I don't know. He's, God is what, what it, the term is ineffable, which means you can't really put words on him, right? What we're really saying when we're saying we believe in God, so imagine telling your friends this. What you're really saying is we're, and your kids, what you're really saying is we're trusting in this being who's beyond being in this kind of deep, dependent, and surrendered way. And we're really just expressing a kind of creature consciousness. If we use the words of Rudolf Otto, what he's saying is that somehow that, that every time we come to God, we're just saying, we're creature, you're not. And then and, and on some way, we realize that there's a, an uncreated that we are relating to, and we can't quite describe you, but that's what this is about. Faith is the impulse of a creature who's submerged and overwhelmed by his or her own nothingness in contrast to the one who is supreme above all creatures, who is not a creature at all. I'm not trying to confuse you. 
But what I am after this morning is to push back on our tendency to speak with too much certitude about God and our beliefs. I mean, we can all have definite convictions, don't misunderstand me, that we believe strongly in. That's totally fine. But we must do so with a kind of openness to others' views without judgment. See, I'm convinced I am right about everything I think. I mean, I really do, or else I would think something different, right? So I'm not saying you shouldn't think, you know, believe what you think. I'm sure you do believe what you think. But, but I'm also suspicious that I'm not always right. And, I, and, I, and I, that's why I continue to read and listen and talk with people who are different than me who are other than me. And I try to listen for their articulation and their understanding other than me. I, I have some deep convictions about the end times, about how it's supposed to play out. Is there a rapture? Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Is there a millennium, a millennium? You know, all that kind of stuff. What's actually going on? What is the book of Revelations actually saying? I've got some really definite thoughts about that, right? And yet, at the same time, I, I read things that are different than me. One of the books I read is there's one that's called Four Views on the Book of Revelation. <laughs> well, that's to confuse you. And what's really weird is that all of them are pretty tenable ideas, which makes me think maybe I'm not right. <laughs> or, or when it comes to the convictions that I have about salvation, how it's experienced, how it's sustained, but I'm open to how other people look at it. Here's another book I have. On, it's called uh, Four Views on Salvation <laughs> in a Pluralistic World. And honestly, you read that book and you go, in the first view, you go, yeah. Second view, you go, yeah. Third view, you go, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. Fourth view, by the time you get done, you go, well, yeah, God saves. I'm very opinionated about eternal judgment, about what hell is about, what it constitutes. But I look to what the church has said about it historically, and not everyone has agreed. And, and though I'm still convinced of what I think, I really am, or I'd think differently, I'm not nearly as dogmatic about it, because I read books like this one. Four views on hell. <laughs> fascinating book. I'm not kidding. You'd read it and you go, holy cow, I've never thought about that that way. And yet somewhere in the church, someone has articulated it that way. And when you get done reading all of them, somebody says, what do you think about hell? Yeah, I got some thoughts. I'm not dogmatic about them because there's possible ways that what you believe could be articulated differently. And if you oversimplify the gospel and you've only heard and represent the tradition that you're from and you think you're representing the whole of the church, sometimes we basically get caught off into cul-de-sacs of thought. And then we conflate that, those thoughts, or we combine or enmesh those thoughts with what we think the truth is. And then we get hard-nosed and de demanding, and before you know it, we start another denomination. <laughs> I think we should carry a certain pause, a certain kind of humility when we talk about God. When we talk about things of eternity, again, Paul warned us that we only see through a glass darkly. We want to come across crystal clear. In the gospel we just read, read Jesus speaks of the meek. He says, they inherit the earth. And the meek are not decisive, 
confident, reactive people who speak with authority and certainty and know the truth. That's not who the meek are. Meekness is more of a listening than a speaking. It's, it's a patient discernment and then responding versus some kind of impulsive on the spot reacting. The, the fact is that truth is not as black and white as we hoped it to be, as I've said. And this should be upsetting to some of you right now. Right? I mean, some of you should be, wait, truth is either true or it's not true. That's just illogical, fuzzy thinking. There should be some of that response if you're the average American group. Okay, so let me ask you. The Bible says God is a rock. Is that true? Yeah. Really? God is a rock? Well, well, it's not true like that. Okay, so there's a nuance to it. Yeah, okay. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. Is that true? Well, yeah. Yeah, really? That He's just a consuming fire? No. The reality is, is all of our God talk, we've got to realize, isn't that clear. Back in the fourth century, this is what the early church fathers thought. They talked about it. We read Gregory of Nyssa. Watch this. This is one of his comments. Quote, the nature of God is beyond the power of humanity to understand. We can study the world around us and see that God is, but we cannot find out exactly what he is. We can only arrive at truths that tell us what he is not, like he is incorporeal. In other words, he has no body. But not any adequate conceptions that tell us what he is. We are compelled to use figurative and anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic, just language. It's just like anthropology is about human beings. Anthropomorphic means it's language about God that makes him human-like, like God's hand, or that um, you know, we call him father. Those are anthropomorphic kind of descriptions. That's all we have. But we must remember that such language is only figurative. All the saints in the Bible, privileged as they were, even the apostles themselves only knew God in heart. This includes the works of God that transcend the powers of intelligence and of wonder. How much more the God who created them? End quote. Slap your mama. <laughs> see, see, truth must be experienced in the tension of contradiction. And it's only then when we refuse to be totally convinced and exacting where you believe that you're totally right and all others are wrong. You've got to get away from that. It's only when we refuse that kind of absolutism that our lives become a song to the world. The people aren't looking for truth because what is truth in Pilate's words? How do we know such things as metaphysics? It's not like gravity. It's not describable in that kind of detail or seen as a thing. God and his word and his thoughts. If you handle truth well, your life becomes a kind of tune, a kind of song. And others will, will first maybe catch the tune and then want to learn the words. And it's in the words that we carry the message of life. But first of all, they, they'll have to see the tune, the attitude, the heart. James 3 talks about this. He actually says you lie against the truth when you have wrong motives and, and emotions all wrapped up in what you think is true. He said, no, no, the, the people that are really the truth carriers are the ones that are gentle and kind and meek and sweet. 
You've got to go back and read that text in James 3. So somehow our lives become a, a kind of song, you know? So, you know, they pick up, they don't pick up the words. I don't know if you've ever noticed on the radio. I don't, if you pick up a song, it's usually the tune first, you know? Like, how many know what I'm talking about? Anybody recognize that song? No way! Slow down. You sing it with me, you know it. You move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. La ba da 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 da. Feeling groovy. La ba da 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 da. Feeling groovy. Some of you guys, you just, where, where were you in the 70s, man? Where were you? You weren't even born, you poor unfortunate souls. We have no tune that catches people if we don't live in the tension of truth. We don't, if we just try to blast truth, all we sound, not, not like a, a beautiful tune that they catch. We sound like bleeding calves. Jesus loves you. You should not sin. That's in your city. Jesus loves you. Boy, isn't that engaging. Don't you want to be like that person? Let me ask Jason to come up here. I, I thought of an image of this is this idea of tension, and, and he brought a couple of guitars with him. And if, you, if, if we don't understand how truth works, see, truth, you can be on one end of truth and, you know, say that this is what you think is happening. And then times come up here, Jason. And, uh, you know, you can try to play your song for the world. Or you can be on the other end, right? And so play us a little something on that, man. <laughs> this is why we're not reaching the world for Jesus. There's no song. It's just we're either fundamental on one side or fundamentalists on the other side, and we're absolute and confident on where we're at. And if you don't agree, that's okay. I'm never going to compromise the word of God. And think we're reaching people. Think we're helping our children to see Jesus and all we're really doing is obscuring him because you're such an absolutist. Here's the good news about absolutism. You can be one in about six months, be a, be a perfect Christian, six months. You'll have it all figured out. The problem is if you keep growing, you'll all of a sudden lose your perfection. I can't imagine, you can't imagine how smart I was when I graduated from Bible school. <laughs> I knew every answer on top of it. I knew it. I had it down. <laughs> Listen to me for six hours while I talk. But then, if you can get some tension, you, you ready there, my friend? If you can tie to the idea that you're a peacemaker, but sometimes you have a sword, that you love the poor and hear their cry, but sometimes you have to ask them to get off their buttocks and work. If you, if you get this idea that there are different ways to look at the end of time, 
all of a sudden, this is what happens. So how do you think you're going to reach your kids? Your little absoluting, striking on a guitar that has no real sound out of it and just say it's the will of God and the word of God and you need to buck up and accept the truth. Is that how you're going to win your neighbors and friends? Or do you think maybe if you get into some tension and start being more open and realizing there's more to the truth of God and the ways we think about God, and in that actual process, and you start learning how to move around the frets and mess with your hands, and be more open, all of a sudden, who wouldn't listen to that? Most of you recognize, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Somebody who has never been in church would never recognize that, but wouldn't they listen to that? Wouldn't they love that? And then all of a sudden, if they heard it and heard it and heard it, and then one day heard the words, oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. One last thing. Dare to keep listening until that song emerges. Jason didn't just pick up the guitar this morning. <laughs> Learn to listen long enough to let a third way of thinking emerge. Whether you're talking about issues of faith, whether you're talking about political issues, Your absolute position on one side or the other with racked up texts does not make Christ known. It's your meekness. It's your openness. Not, you don't have to change how you think necessarily unless what you hear makes more sense to you 
or seems to be more true to the text. But you cannot judge and write off people because they're different in their view about you. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, the bottom line is, even on social issues, dealing with the poor, talking about racism, truth always has several sides to it. And if you want to reach your family and friends, your coworkers and kids, you're going to have to decide to not be totally convinced and exacting where you believe that you are totally right and all others are wrong. Because if there's anything true about our culture, it is getting more and more suspicious of people who are totally convinced and exacting where they believe that they're totally right and all others are wrong. Your children can smell it a mile away by the time they hit their teens. In fact, the more certitude you display, the more skeptical they will become. You don't want to do this with your faith. You don't want to do this with your political positions. You do not want to do this with your social ideas. Be more humble. Be less didactic, less bossy. Simply bear witness to what you believe. And remember, belief is notoriously sketchy. Refuse to stand in judgment of other people's opinions and positions. Stand as a witness to what you believe to be true. Yes, but do it with humility and respect and a longing to understand the other. You might be shocked to discover that when you listen, there's often a third way of viewing things. Or at least you'll experience more respect for those with whom you disagree because you hear them. You don't have to agree with them after you listen, but you never get the option of dismissing them. You never have the option of judging others and what they claim to know. If God honors people's rights to think and believe differently, who are you or me to fight them? Witness to the truth as you understand it, but always try to understand them, to be truly respectful and to truly listen to the other. When you listen to the other side, either you'll become more convinced that you're right, but you'll do it with less dogmatism and less absolutism and more respect for the other. Or you'll become convinced that they're right and you're wrong, but you'll still carry less dogmatism over it. And, and then, or you learn a third way, a kind of blended way. All of those things are the basis of a song. One last point I'll poke the bear with before we leave. Let's just talk about racism just a minute. By some measures, racial prejudice has decreased dramatically in the United States. I grew up in an era where there were bathrooms that only blacks could use and whites used. Places you could go were only whites had and blacks were not allowed to go into. And as recently as 1945, there were a lot of states that decried African-Americans basic freedoms as, um, as to who they could marry, where they could live, where they could send their children to school. And these laws began to change, thankfully, notably with the 1954 Supreme Court decision that banned segregation in schools and then the 1964 uh, Federal uh, Civil Rights Act in 19, things began to change in our culture. In, in 1942, only 2% of Americans believed that blacks and whites should attend the same schools. Whereas by 1970, those percentages had increased to 83%. That people thought, no, that's right. Um, in 1997, a Gallup poll was taken. 93% of whites said that they would vote for a qualified black candidate for president. Compared to 35% in 1958. Also in 1997, 61% said they approved of interracial marriage compared to 4%, only 4% in 1958. So there's obviously been some encouraging improvements 
in, in how racism is expressed, at least on a cognitive or conscious level. But there are still problems. It's when we start talking about problems that some of us can react. Because especially if you grew up in that era and you're, you're a person that was in middle class or whatever and white, you thought, well, we've dealt with those issues. And then when somebody comes and accuses us of being racist, oh my goodness, there can be such a reaction that can happen. And we just get, that happened to me about three years ago. My kid said, dad, you're a racist. I was so angry. Oh my goodness, I was so angry. Where is that guitar? And I stopped and I thought, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean? What do you mean? Help me understand this, help me understand this. I started reading several books, trying to understand what, would, what does white privilege mean? What does that even mean? What is, what is um, you know, kind of systemic racism? It's, it's a little under the, under the um, underhidden, that's undertow in our culture. What does that even mean? And I ran into things like this. This is Timothy Wilson. He writes, quote, in 1989, researchers conducted a sobering study to see if, it, if there was still racial discrimination in housing, it's just one sector, in the United States. In 20 locations throughout the country, accomplices of, re, uh, uh, accomplices of the researchers met with real estate agents to inquire about buying or renting homes and apartments. The accomplices spent, uh, presented themselves as similarly as possible except for their race. Some were white, some were black, some were Hispanic. In a discouragingly large number of cases, the real estate agents discriminated against their minority clients. This is 1989. They presented them with fewer options than the white clients and were less likely to follow up the meeting with phone calls. The amount of discrimination the minorities encountered was about the same as was found in a similar study conducted 12 years earlier suggesting that there has been little or no reduction in housing discrimination over that period. Now, here's what the social science data says. On an open view, if you look at things like the rights of people to marry interracially, the rights of people to go where they want to eat, go to school, that kind of stuff, there's been tremendous improvement. But when it comes to the data of how people internally reflect to others of other color or races, there's some dramatic problems that appear. I've got a number of studies I can show you, which I'm not going to do here. But all I'm trying to suggest to you is don't be too sure about these kinds of issues. Don't be too confident that you have all the facts. Let's be an open people. Because when we're working with coworkers and people around us and our children, if we don't demonstrate a kind of openness on all of these issues, religious and unreligious, or just because there is no religious, non-religious. For us, it's all one place, God's world. That we have to make sure that we're open people. Lindsay Barber, who is one of our uh, instructors, uh, one of the people in the church, she's also a professor, works in TCC. Um, she is working with, with um, some folks, and there's this event that they're doing. I wanted to, she told me about it the other day, and I thought, oh, you need to tell us about it. Go ahead. So it's going to be on February 2nd, which is this upcoming Thursday, and it's called Black in America. And really the point of it, there's a panel of students that are going to be putting this on. And they're students that I've interacted with a lot. And they're really outstanding students. And um, the point of that from their perspective is 
they're saying, hey, if you want to find out what our perspective is and what our um, encounters have been, what our um, you know, experiences have been, if you want to find that out, then just come and hear from us. And so they're going to be talking about some things like what Ed was talking about, um, kind of uh, political ways that race has been handled, um, historical ways that race has been handled in America, and then also their personal experiences. And so one of the students in particular is um, someone who was incarcerated for five years, and he got his sentence overturned because it was all based on a search of his vehicle that was an unlawful search. And he has now graduated from TCC. He was a paralegal student. And so um, now he's trying to find ways to find legal ways to fight these sort of injustices that happen. And he also works with the Tulsa Police Department on community policing measures. So, um, and he founded a nonprofit called Racism Stinks, if you ever want to look that up. Mm -hmm. And so um, he's doing a lot of awesome things. And the other students on the panel are also doing a lot of awesome things. So they'll be talking about that kind of Where thing. Where is it at? It's at the TCC Metro Campus in the Center for Creativity. So it's the glass, brand new building on uh, 10th in Boston. This and Thursday night. This Thursday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being involved with that. Amen. Thanks. So why, why am I bringing that up? I, stuff like this can make you, some of you might be really uncomfortable, and we're not forcing anybody to do anything. This is just a great example of if you want to change the world, if you want to be a life for Christ, if you want to influence your children, if you want to influence your neighbors, if you want to influence your coworkers, it's really important that we get some of these social ideas right. It doesn't mean if you would go to this that you would agree with everything. It doesn't mean that you might not, you may change anything in what you think. But here's the beauty of it. Every time you hear somebody's perspective on something, it just makes you kinder. You don't have to change your views. You can keep your views. Your views might be exactly right. My views are exactly right. <laughs> but we should be open to each other. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.